Well, good morning. Thank you for that warm welcome. Uh, my name is Dave Che, and uh, let's see, um, father of three, husband of one. We can you want to flash the picture of my family up there if you like. So uh, those are my, uh, it's my wife, uh, Daniel, just graduated from King's Academy. Maddie, my 14-year-old, is, uh, is just finished ninth grade. <clears throat> and my youngest, nine, just finished fourth grade. So that's my family. And uh, I'd like to welcome all the fathers here today. Uh, happy Father's Day. Let's give the fathers a great hand. Yeah, it's not easy being a dad these days, is it? And um, what a great video of Courageous. I, I, I actually haven't seen that movie, but I was very inspired. I sat in the back, didn't see it the first service. I saw it this service. That was really good. I hope uh, the men in the audience are inspired by that. And uh, it was really wonderful. Uh, let's see, how am I related to uh, South Bay? Uh, Pastor Andy Wood called me, emailed me a few years ago and said, hey, let's have lunch. And uh, I started, started talking, got to be friends. And and over these last couple of years, we've actually partnered together uh, through something called Vision 360, where we're trying to plant 100 churches by 2020 and three, uh, 600 by 2030. And so one church can't do it all, but what if we had 10 churches involved and encouraging each other and supporting each other? And so that's what we do. And uh, it's kind of a new organization. It's based in Orlando, uh, but there's a very strong presence here in the South Bay. And so we're very grateful for that partnership. And uh, South Bay Church is a great church. Uh, it's interesting, the moment I walked in, um, they assigned a, uh, an arms bear to me. And I go, what's an arms bear? Well, he's the guy that's going to protect you. He's going to give you water, whatever you need. You, there's a banana in the, in the back room here if I want to eat something. So unbelievable the kind of care that these guys give. So please give the, the, the South Bay staff a great hand for taking care of you guys. They really are a wonderful staff. <clears throat> I'm, um, I'm really excited to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, this whole series on switch is so appropriate because I think all of us need almost on a daily basis, a paradigm change of what God means to us. Uh, we're surrounded in the Silicon Valley by, uh, Valley by so many temptations, things that kind of engage us. And uh, today we're going to talk about how do you move from the kingdom of self to the kingdom of God? How do you move from things that are uh, temporarily satisfying to things that are eternally satisfying? How do we move from the things that visibly the world says, man, you have to get this, you have to get a job, and you have to get you have to have a good reputation, you have to know the right people, and they, they're so alluring, and you think if you have those things, it feels so secure, right? And yet, when we look at the scriptures, we see that things like money and reputation and uh, kind of maybe deviant lifestyles actually kind of eventually suck the life out of us. And so we're going to see today through a pretty poignant passage that God speaks about this all the time. How do you move from the kingdom of self to the kingdom of God? Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, these words are just words without your anointing. These words are just words unless you are in it. And so we pray, God, as we go through this passage that you would speak to wherever we are, uh, that you would convict, challenge, encourage, surprise, and transform as you please. And uh, we are humbly dependent on you this morning for your great work. Uh, bless this service. Bless this message in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and read Genesis 29, 31 to uh, chapter 30, verse 24. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. 29, 32. Le Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, she gave me this one too. He gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. 
Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at the last, my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, and she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any, this is chapter 30, verses 1 through 2 now. Uh, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Um, this is a passage that describes uh, the life of Jacob. Uh, some refer to Jacob as kind of the third person of the patriarch trinity. You've got Abraham, who was his grandfather. You've got Isaac, who was his father. And then you've got Jacob. In fact, in the Old Testament, God has attached his, his being, his sense of who he is, to those three names. He's often referred to as the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. And this story that we're going to go over today uh, uh, highlights and showcases Jacob's own struggle of coming to a place of going from the kingdom of self to the kingdom of God. Because you see, his name Jacob actually means one who grabs the heel of, one who uh, kind of deceives to get what he wants. So he was kind of born as someone who's kind of all about the kingdom of self. And so God takes him to a place where he slowly journeys with him to come out of that place of the kingdom of self to a kingdom of God. And the background here is really, really important because the Bible, as, as it's written to us, it's actually written to the Israelites, to us. So it's, in a way, we have to kind of understand what's going on there. Jacob's actually on the run. He's actually 500 miles from home. His history is that he swindled a blessing out of, out of, out of his brother. His mother, who uh, adores him, said, look, your father actually favors Esau, your older brother, and the only way you're going to extract a blessing from your dad is by actually pretending that you're Esau. So Re Re Rebecca, his, his mother, actually dresses him up like, like Esau and kind of makes him smell like Esau. And so Isaac, in his old age, can't really tell if it's Jacob or Esau in the room, and he ends up blessing Jacob, not knowing that he's kind of dressed up as Esau. And so the blessing goes to, to Jacob, and Esau finds out, and, and Esau's like, what have you done? I mean, in those days, the blessing, the passing of a blessing from the father to the son was huge. It was like, it, it would translate into favor from God. And so Esau's really angry. And so his mother says, Rebecca says, look, you need to go run. You need to get out of this place, because if you stay here, Esau's going to kill you. Go talk to, go hang out with Laban, your uncle. So he's literally on the run, 500 miles from home. He's isolated. Esau absolutely wants to kill him, and he's alienated. So some would even say that he's, there's this kind of inner emptiness in him. You ever feel that way? Ever feel like you're kind of out of it? You want what you want, but you don't get it. You feel alienated. People don't treat you right. There's a sense of kind of emptiness. Even as followers of Christ, we can feel a little empty. And the temptation is that we take something that's secure, something that makes us feel good, and we feel that emptiness. And that's what Jacob does. So the first axiom that I want to take a look at this morning is this, that inner emptiness always goes looking for the one true love. That inner emptiness always goes looking for the one true love. Um, it's referenced here in uh, Genesis 29, 16 through 18. Uh, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was, was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. 
again, the background is important. You have this, you have this fellow who's on the run, 500 miles from home. He's feeling pretty empty. Then he meets Rachel, who the Bible says is lovely in form. In other words, she was absolutely beautiful, absolutely hot. This is a, a, a woman that he says to himself, man, I don't like feeling empty. I don't like being on the run. I don't like feeling isolated. But boy, if I had Rachel, I bet some of that emptiness would go away. You ever feel like that, fellas in the room? That life isn't going that well? People don't respect you as much as maybe five, ten years ago? You don't have the job that you want to have? And you start thinking, man, but if I had that car or if I had that job before, man, if I had that woman, I bet some of that emptiness would go away. So I don't think it's completely unrelevant, irrelevant to the Silicon Valley to be driven by this emptiness and wanting to fulfill it with something secure. And that's exactly what happens to Jacob. And let's go further along how this plays out in Scripture. Genesis 29, verse 20 through 21 says this. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to lie with her. Doesn't seem unreasonable, does it? I mean, he's waited seven years for goodness sake. Why can't I marry her? But the text actually says, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to lie with her. Hebrew scholars are really uncomfortable about the interpretation of that verse because it literally actually says, my time is complete and I want to have sex with her. Now you tell me, even though you love somebody and he, and he wants to marry her, is that kind of the first thing that comes out and you echo to the world, I want to have sex with her? It's almost as if there's, a, there's a, um, almost an inappropriate addiction to who Rachel is. So it's very possible that in his inner emptiness, that he goes looking for something that he considers the one true love. And that many of us in our own emptiness may look for something that we think is secure. Wealth, reputation, what others think of us, and we, it's temporarily satisfying. And friends, here's the crazy thing. Jacob isn't the only one that feels this way. In fact, Leah feels exactly the same way in her own way. Genesis 29, verse 31 to 32 says this. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it's because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. What the, the Old Testament story, the way it goes is, is Jacob is in love with Rachel, and he can't wait to marry her, right? And he marries her thinking, man, this is the, this is the woman I want to consummate with. And on the night of consummation, he goes in the teepee, and Leah ends up in the deep and he actually ends up consummating with her. Now, you may have to ask, well, how could that be? I mean, was, was it really dark outside? I mean, how do you, you know, fall in love with one woman, but you end up sleeping with another? I, my guess is that in those days when they had weddings, all the women would veil. So you really couldn't tell who you were marrying. And I'm thinking there are no lights at night. And you're thinking, man, this is Rachel, right? No, it's Leah. So Laban actually tricks, tricks Jacob and gives away his older daughter to Jacob. Because he knows that there's no other way that, that Leah's ever going to get married. But let's look deeper than that. Why is that? I mean, why would a father do that unless there were some severe circumstances, right? The text tells us that Rachel was lovely in form, but Leah was, had weak eyes. You think that's kind of strange, that configuration? You would think... Um, okay, so that means that if, if Leah had weak eyes, she couldn't see that well, then, then Rachel could see a lot better. She must have had 20-20, huh? I mean, you would think that would be the parallelism, right? I mean, why would you say those two things unless they were related? 
Well, they'll relate the other way. You see, Rachel was lovely in form because she was absolutely gorgeous, absolutely hot. Leah was, had weak eyes because she was absolutely unattractive. In fact, she was considered an ugly duckling. And that's why Laban had to trick Jacob into marrying her. And we don't know exactly what their childhood was like, but my guess is this. That when suitors came knocking on their door looking for Rachel, right? Where's Rachel? Oh, my goodness. She's unbelievable. That Leah probably got overlooked because they were looking at Rachel. Because, you see, Leah was the one with the weak eyes. And I'm thinking as, as that must have happened often, what must have happened and what must have, uh, how that must have affected her self-esteem. That every day of her young life, every day that someone came knocking on, on their door looking for Rachel, that she was the one that was overlooked all the time. What did that do to her self-esteem? What did that do to her sense of being? What did that do to kind of her own self-identity? My guess is that there was a lot of emptiness in her life. And it's very interesting, and in this situation, that her inner emptiness drives her to think, wow, you know, I know that Jacob really loves Rachel, but I bet if I had some kids, the text says, oh, then my husband will love me now. Isn't that interesting? Of all the motivations that we could have to have kids, that her motivation is like, if I have kids, my husband will love me now. Because inner emptiness always goes looking for the one true love. Jacob went looking for Rachel to fulfill his emptiness. Leah went looking to, to have kids to fulfill her emptiness of not being loved because her whole life she was considered the one with weak eyes. It happened to Jacob, it happened to Leah, and now it happens to Rachel. Verse, uh, chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Let me, let me read that last part. Give me children or I'll die. Is that the language of someone who is trusting God for kids? Is that the language of someone who we, you know, when we read about uh, Jacob and Rachel, it's like, wow, that's the paradigm of godliness. Man, these are people I need to follow, and we should. But in this moment, it looks like she's having a little bit of an issue here. Perhaps there's some inner emptiness there. And she's thinking, man, if I don't have kids, I'm just going to kill myself. It happens to Jacob. It happens to Leah. And it happens to Rachel. Might it be happening to some of us today? That disappointments, the way our parents view us, the way we've been brought up, the, the promotion that we didn't get, the rejections that we've experienced in the last couple of years, all of that can make us feel pretty empty. And God is doing a great work because he, has, he allows that emptiness so that it can be fulfilled by him. And yet we're thinking, but if I just had that six-figure salary, if I had that right mate, and if I had that right group of people, you know what, I think I'd be okay. And so just like Jacob, just like Leah, and just like Rachel, we look for that, that, that one true love that we think is going to fulfill us. Let's ask a really practical question. Why do we take matters into our own hands rather than wait for God's best for us? Why do we take matters into our own hands rather than wait for God's best for us? Why do you think? I think there's a part of us that thinks we know better than God. I think there's a part of us that thinks, no, you know, God's, yeah, he can do it, but, you know, he's going to use us, and we better go do it. And, you know, we're not sure if he can. So one foot is in God's kingdom, and the other foot is in the kingdom of self, and we start to do it all by ourselves. Maybe that's the case. Well, what starts to happen? Let's play that out. Let's say you pursue that dream that's not of God. You think it's going to temporarily fulfill. What's going to happen? Well, this is what Jacob does. He says, man, I can't wait to have Rachel. I can't wait to have Rachel. And he pursues that really hard, this over-desire. 
Nothing wrong with Rachel. She's a woman. And there's nothing wrong with marriage. They're good things. But he wants it so badly that it's excessive. It goes beyond maybe what God was thinking for him. And the text tells us that he wants Rachel so bad, but he ends up getting Leah. In the morning, it's actually Leah. And so here's a second axiom I want to share with you. In the morning, it's always Leah. In the morning, it's always Leah. Here's Genesis 29.5. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Have, uh, uh, why have you deceived me? I mean, he wants Rachel. He's craving for Rachel. He's on the run. He's 500 miles from home, and Esau's going to kill him. But he says, man, if I had Rachel, that would be so satisfying. He wants Rachel. But really, in the end, he gets Leah. And it's just a metaphor to say when you want something really badly, a lot of times what you want, it's kind of a disappointment. A lot of times uh, what you crave and what, what the world views as secure, actually in the end it's like, wow, it's not as secure as I thought. Because in the morning it's always Leah. In the morning it's always Leah. What's a great picture of that? How, what, what, what do you mean by that? What does that look like in real life? Um, many years ago when I was starting out in, in, uh, in the ministry, especially as a senior pastor from two, uh, summer of 2001 to 2010, I was a senior pastor in the area for 10 years before I stepped down May 2011. And uh, in those early years, you get a lot of coaching from people, right? And one of the things that people were saying, well, you know, that's good that you have a phone, Dave, but it's now, to get, now time to get a smartphone. This is, your, this, is, this, is, this is what relevant pastors do, Dave. We get, they get smartphones. So the first one that we got conversation about was the Coyosia 7535. I mean, it was a big honking thing. It was like an anvil, for goodness sake. I could have used that as a paperweight. But it was supposed to be cool, so we got it. You could email. Um, you, could, you could talk on the phone. You can text. I mean, internet, everything. You know, a few months goes by, and my BlackBerry friends are like, Dave, 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 come on. Corsair, that's like ancient history. You need to get a BlackBerry. I mean, there's, there's the plastic ones, and, you know, it's really fast. It's streaming. You can get, you can get email anytime you want. I go, okay, I do like fast email. Cool. We'll pick that up. A few months later, my BlackBerry friends was like, wow, you know, that one's kind of outdated. You know, they make the titanium ones now. I go, what? Titanium? They're making that now? I was like, I just bought one of these plastic ones. No, they got the titanium ones. You got to get one of those. In fact, if you get one of those, you can go overseas. And it can, it can, it can be global. You know, it'd be really great if you got one of those. I go, Fine. You know, another maybe a year goes by, and all my iPhone friends are like, come on, man, that's Blackberry, that's like ancient, you gotta get the iPhone. You know, we, none, of us, none of us feel like we ever need one, but we want one, and I know you want one. <laughs> so we have the iPhone 1, <laughs> the iPhone 2, the iPhone 3, and it was just when I was like, okay, what do I do, do I get the iPhone 3, or what do I do? Years go by, and I go, fine, I'm gonna get the iPhone 4 the 4S, the one that talks to you. I said, then I have, will have really made it if I get the iPhone 4S. I was like, wow, I've really made it as a pastor. <laughs> and then, I don't know if you have like tweet relationships where you, you know, follow people. I said, you know, I want to follow Apple because I think they're pretty cool. So I have like four things of Apple and they kind of let you know what's coming up. What's coming up? iPhone 5. <laughs> Is that any surprise? You know what? It's just a matter of time before I get so unsatisfied with what I have now. Because you see, in the morning, it's always Leah. Hey, I want, want, I want Rachel. Yeah, I want the Rachels of the world. But it does seem like that we end up with Leah all the time. That metaphorically, that it's never satisfying. 
And I think that's the message. That's the message, I believe, of God's word. That in the morning, it's always lamb. Well, what if we took for a kingdom perspective? What if we took the perspective, like, what do I do with what I have then? What if I had the perspective saying, well, what if I have is pretty good? What if I have what I have is, is good enough and that, you know, it could be a lot worse? Maybe I should start thinking, like, what I have is good enough and that, you know, other people don't have what I have. It could be a lot worse. <clears throat> Snoopy is having a conversation with Charlie Brown, very important conversation, right before Thanksgiving. And uh, Charlie Brown breaks the bad news to, to Snoopy. Look, economic hardship, a lot of budget cuts. Can't, you can't join us for Thanksgiving this year. And Snoopy's like, are you kidding me? I'm like family. How could you not include me in this? Charlie says, look, I'm sorry, man. This is what it is. Can't do Thanksgiving this year. And at first, Snoopy was really shocked. He's like, how could you? I'm part of family. And he kind of sobered up. And he got very wise. He said, at least, at least I'm not the turkey. You know, <laughs> I'm going to make it through this. At least I'm not the turkey. Many of us are going to drive away from this place in a car of some sort. And as you drive south or north on 101, you may be tempted. As you look around, it's like, man, I like my car, but dang, that guy's got a Mercedes. Dang, that guy's got a Beamer. Why don't I have one of those? And you may be tempted to think, man, I'm not anybody because the car I drive. And you look around, and they've got better cars than you. Rather than thinking, man, I need that, why not say, you know, it could be a lot worse. At least I have a car. At least I drive something. You know, there are a lot of people in the world that don't have anything. I've got something. It could be a lot worse. Take the Snoopy approach. We're going to get to our homes, and, and we're going to be uh, going to our door and jiggling our, our keys to get inside. And you may be tempted to think, man, all my friends have standalone houses. I got a condo. I got an apartment. I've got, a I got an attached house. What is up with that? And you may feel like a complaining spirit kind of brewing. At that moment, just say, oh, it could be a lot worse. At least I have a home. I mean, there are plenty of people in the world that have thatched roofs that are barely making it because of the harsh weather. At least I have a house. Why not be like Snoopy and say, you know, at least it could be a lot worse. At least I live in a house. Some of us who are married are going to go to bed tonight. And then tomorrow morning, you're going to kind of roll in your bed and you're going to look at your spouse. And you're going to say, it could be a lot worse. <laughs> at least I'm married. At least we have somebody. Not everyone's got somebody. What if we had that attitude and said, you know what? In the morning, it's going to be Alea anyway. I may as well try to figure out a kingdom perspective here and say, you know, it could be a lot worse. At least I have a checking account. At least I have a job. At least I have friends. Because it could be a lot worse. True? Well, what do we look at? What, what, how do we know if something is becoming a one true love? How do we know if something that we love, like a person or thing or, or reputation, it's like nothing wrong with those things. When does, when does that go from being healthy to unhealthy? Where's that line? Because it seems like throughout history that we have plenty of examples of how a love of money, money's fine. But where's that line? Is like, oh, the love of money is the root of all evil. You know, having friends of the opposite sex, that's cool. But where's that line that says, oh, boy, I just crossed the line. I went from kingdom of, of God being, being fairly healthy to like, wow, this is all about me now. So let's ask this question. Where is that line, or how do we know if we've crossed the line? How do we know if something or someone is becoming our one true love? I think that's a really good question for us to be challenged by. Because I'm thinking many of us are like, well, you just said that, that 
that Jacob being married to Rachel, like Rachel may be a problem, or, or Leah wanting kids may be a problem. That's kind of, man, you, what are you saying? You got, like, I got to get rid of my spouse? I got to not have kids? No, let's, let's see where that line is, potential responses. I think if we tend to sacrifice in order to keep that habit, that's probably a pretty good sign that a one true love is developing there. What do I mean by that? Let's say you've got a great family life, but you're in a tough stretch where you've got to make some like, decent money and you've got to spend extra hours right, at work. And normally you'd be home for dinner at 6, maybe at the latest 6.37, but now you, you know, in order to make ends meet, you're coming home at 8, 9, and you're starting to sacrifice your family in order to feed the habit of maintaining a good living. So I would say a potential index would be the sacrifice in order to keep that habit. If you find yourself sacrificing your family and good things to make sure that you're making enough money, hey, you know what, is that really a good trade-off? If you find that, that in order to make that money, you're sacrificing your physical and mental health and that your integrity is compromised because your boss is saying, look, you're going to fudge the numbers so that we look good, right? And you're going to stay late, right, to take care of that, right? And so we're sacrificing our integrity to make sure that we make enough money to put food on the table. And yet it's like, wait a minute, I've just sacrificed my family. I've sacrificed my integrity. Is this really the way I want to go? So the things that you tend to sacrifice is a pretty good sign that a one true love is starting to develop. Well, let's take sexuality. I think a lot of Christians love God and they want to pursue God and, and sex is a good thing. But if you're sacrificing your time with the Lord, uh, your time with, uh, with your friends in order to, to pursue kind of a, a, a porn addiction that you know is going to absolutely kill you, but nobody knows about it. It's this kind of secret thing that nobody knows about. You think, well, you know, why is sex a, a bad thing? You know, it's, it's just porn. Everyone is doing it. But if you're sacrificing your own sanity and your own peace of mind to maintain that habit, maybe there's a one true love developing there and thinking, man, I'm, I'm just empty, man. You have no idea, Dave. What are you talking about? You're like a guest preacher. What do you, you have no idea how hard life is for me. I'm just kind of, t I'm just medicating this because I'm in pain. Well, that's exactly what, the way that one true loves operate. Defensiveness, when criticized about that topic, devastated if we ever lost it, meaning if you lost that car, if you lost that boyfriend or girlfriend, if you lost that ring, if you lost that article of clothing, it's like, man, I, it's, it, you get very self-possessive, right? And the cause of our worries, like what is it that makes us feel worried. So these are just indexes that we can look at. All right, so what do we do here? It's like, wow, that's kind of bleak. You know, Jacob had issues with, with Rachel. He looked at Rachel in, in a different way. Uh, Leah had issues with Jacob and wanted to have kids, and Rachel really wanted kids to kind of feel fulfilled. How do we get out of that? How do we move from the kingdom of self to the kingdom of God? And here's the third axiom. The deepest, the most passionate desires of our hearts can only be satisfied by God. Genesis 29, 35 says this, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, and she stopped having children. The reality is that she kept having kids. She still had kids after this, but she stopped having kids for the wrong reasons. She stopped having kids because she wanted to keep having this relationship with Jacob. She stopped having kids for that reason and started having kids because this is what God called her to do. She wants to love her kids. And it was just a switch that she made. She went from the kingdom of self. It's like, oh, I want, I want Jacob. He'll, he'll really start to love me if I have kids. She went from that reality of kingdom of self to say, wait a minute. I should have kids because I love kids, because I want to give myself away, not because I want to receive this status that I don't have right now. 
And she looked at Jacob and said, man, that guy's just a guy. He's a man. He's not God. She stopped having kids for the wrong reasons. And maybe God is saying that to us, that maybe the job that you have, you stop going to work for the wrong reasons, just to make yourself look good. Kind of like, oh, yeah, I got this job. And you're kind of dropping the name of your job all wherever you go because it makes you feel good. Maybe God is saying, don't leave your job, but don't let this job own you. Don't worship this job. Be who you are, but don't give your heart to it. Let it give you a living, but let the identity come from who God is and praise God because of it. And that's exactly what Leah does. And here's the proof. Genesis 29.10, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom he belongs. And the obedience of the nation is his meaning that when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, the lineage of Jesus Christ does not come through Joseph, uh, 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 Jacob and Rachel. It comes through the line of Leah. See, that Judah is the line of Christ. And God looks at that and saying, yes, I know that Leah was the one with the weak eyes. I know that she was the one that was alienated. But I see here that Leah's heart has changed. And God blesses that and says, I will take the marginalized, the voiceless, the ones who have weak eyes, and I will use them as a channel of blessing to the world. And so, friends, that's the opportunity for us today to look at our inner emptiness as an opportunity to say, God, I'm so tempted to fill it with everything else. And God is saying, what if I filled that with you? What if I filled that with God and he took care of us and then we can move forward and no matter how painful that might be, no matter how unsatisfying in the beginning, God promises joy. He promises joy in the morning. And that's the kind of God that we have. How do you move from the kingdom of self to the kingdom of God? You look at that emptiness and you realize, man, this is, this is a calling card. This is, this is a challenge for me to depend on God and not just in myself. How do you move from the kingdom of self to the kingdom of God? Allow Jesus to be the most passionate desires of your heart, to, to let him be the one that you stand by and says, you and only you, God, occupy my deepest recesses of my heart, and I worship you today because you are the one true God. Let no man, let no woman, let no thing come between us. We worship you, and we love you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this special time of blessing. Thank you for... Um, sharing with us and showing us that, that the people of God struggle. The people of God struggle with identity, struggle with wanting things. And, and just like us, God, in the Silicon Valley, we want to associate with good things, with good names and wealth and reputation. And today you, you've shown us, God, that, that these things are fleeting, that in the morning it really is layup. And we ask you for a help as we pull our hearts away from these things that are seemingly so attractive, so alluring, that you would replace that with the greatest passionate desires of our hearts, which is to be with you. May you be at the center of our lives, and we can operate. Our lives can be an overflow of that. And so help us to see and learn, God, to put you first, to seek you first, to move from the kingdom of self to the kingdom of God. In Christ's name, amen.